follow along with me if you would. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for those who, who I, sorry, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe, will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, in the world, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is a short prayer for help from the Lord now. Father, from your words and by your spirit, enlighten our hearts that we might see the truth of it and be changed by it. For Jesus' sake and in his name we ask it. Amen. A prayer for glory is our heading for this glorious chapter. Um, as I have thought about tackling this as one sermon, um, I have often consoled myself that should my time continue here, someday this could be an entire sermon series in and of itself. 
there is a wonder to this passage that can't be covered in a hundred sermons, of course. I mean, that's true of all of God's word. But as we think on the prayer of Jesus and we think on our own prayer lives, it might be helpful for us to imagine sitting in a prayer meeting with Jesus. And you're going around the table and everyone has said their prayers and Jesus has prayed something along the lines of what we've just read. And it comes to you. Now it's your turn to pray. What will you say? Ditto? Amen? I agree? Could there be anything that could be added to a prayer like this? Could you, after this kind of prayer, say, and Lord, my car just keeps having so many problems and could you just kind of hard to throw in some of the things that we might think are are menial and unnecessary and are small in light of the glory of what Jesus has prayed right here. But there's something that we ought to catch, and if you have a sermon outline, I hope it will be helpful for you. But perhaps we might sum up the call of this passage, the thing to obey. is understanding that we are called by Jesus to know God through the glory of prayer. To no one who knows us completely. And if there is a risk to be taken in engaging in prayer before God, it is not our risk so much as his in one sense. Certainly it is our risk to enter into the holy of holies in prayer. It is our risk to bring our sinful, fallen and faltering selves before a holy and just judge unless he has invited us in. But imagine this. The God of the universe has, in a sense, handed you a microphone to speak to him. That's a large, that is, a, it is an insurmountable call to come to prayer before the Holy of Holies, before the King of the universe. Now, building up to this prayer, I will call to your mind the last few things we've covered. We've talked in John 16 about the Holy Spirit advantage, that he will guide us in all truth, that he will be the presence of God in the everyday, moment-by-moment life of the Christian. That on top of that, the victory of Christ also calls us to overcome the sorrows of this world, to know that however long our sorrow lasts in these moments of life on earth, that they will be more than eclipsed by the joy that is to come. We've talked about heaven. We've talked about Jesus overcoming the world so that we have every reason to have courage, not only in this life here and now, but that the home that we are headed towards is secure, it is ready and prepared by Jesus himself, or we will enter into a fuller understanding of our relationship with God. You know, in one sense, and perhaps better to say, from the divine perspective of God, our relationship with him will change when we pass from this life to the next. But perhaps from God's perspective, it will change less than from our perspective. Because the one who has seen us every moment of our lives is the one whom we will, with our own eyes, behold. That's a radical change, isn't it? when we sing and think of our faith being turned to sight. That that when we think about who we really know, seeing them is such a huge part of that. 
when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, there will be this great mystery of seeing for the first time someone you've known for so long. That you will be brought into, swept up into the, as Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly right now, but then we will see face to face. The clarity will be perfect. 2020 vision, high definition picture. And Jesus' prayer calls us to know God in our relationship to prayer, to not simply close our eyes and look up to the ceiling as though our prayers won't extend beyond that. Jesus has prayed some pretty magnificent prayers, hasn't he? What, what other prayers come to your mind when you think of the high points of Jesus praying in the Bible? Literal question for you to answer. Sermon on the Mount, yeah, excellent. What other prayers? The Lord's Prayer, the classic one, right? The one that, that we go to when we think of a good model to follow in prayer. What else? I'm just looking for one more, but maybe you have more. It is finished, yeah. His prayer from the cross, too, yeah. In the garden. That was the other one I had written down as well. We talked about it last week as well, you know, in thinking about Jesus saying, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, right? Yes. These great high points of prayer. And it, it would be hard to say that one has surpassed the other, but uh, um, certainly in length, we have this whole and rich chapter of Jesus praying to the Father at a very particular time in his ministry. And, and this prayer has often throughout church history been referred to as the high priestly prayer. That is to say that Jesus being our mediator, as we talked about with the kids, with the phone, the one who goes between us and God, the high priest, who here on earth in the Old Testament law was only able once a year to go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus, as our true high priest, has brought us into the Holy of Holies and given us perfect access, moment by moment, to enter into the throne of the Lord, throne room of the Lord. This high priestly prayer then becomes, in, in one sense, a contrast to the Lord's Prayer or the prayer in the, well, prayer in the garden has this as well, but in some sense, this kind of gives us even more of a behind-the-scenes kind of look at what the relationship is between God the Father and God the Son. Now, if you think about behind the scenes of a stage performance, it is one of the nightmares of stage crew to have that red curtain fall and reveal everything that's going on that isn't meant to be seen on the stage. And this, is, this has happened for me. I remember in high school, uh, we were doing Cinderella. and Goodness, Cinderella, that was a terrible play. But I was on stage crew, and we needed to figure out some way to magically move a pot of flowers from underneath the table to the top of the table. And we had conversations about what if we cut a hole in the table? And what if we have a lever and mechanism? And all this? We didn't have time, energy, or the smarts to do that. So I sat underneath the table for the entirety of the scene. And I was still just about as tall as I am right now, so it was very uncomfortable. I sat under the table until a particular line was spoken. And it was my job to move the flowers up onto the table. And I remember that my director thought that there would be a way for me to do so without my hand being visible, without there being, you know, that there would be some kind of illusion. We're talking about a high school drama production here. And I told her, it's just not going to work. We got to embrace it. We have to, I have to sit under the table. And when I move the flower, I need to just be obvious about it. And I even made a sound effect. It was something like, whoop, 
something like that when the fairy godmother made the flowers magically appear. It didn't even have anything to do with the story. It was totally unnecessary. But there was this point where we recognized that illusion and reality were going to meet in a very obvious way and, and, and do what, what we fear to do is called breaking the fourth wall. In some sense, as you're sitting before a stage, it's very easy to do that because you're in person, you know those people acting, uh, that's not really who they are. They're, they have other names, they have lives apart from the stage performance that we're seeing. But what's amazing about what Christ does in this prayer, as we think about pulling back the curtain to see what is going on between the Father and the Son that perhaps we don't always get to see or that the 11 didn't always get to see. Again, remember, Jesus so often would go off by himself before anyone else was awake to go and spend time with his Father. And here, as we already pointed out in verse 1, there's no transition. Jesus doesn't say, now leave me alone. I'm going to go pray, and you guys can all stay here and wonder what in the world's going to happen for the rest of the night. He prays this prayer right before their eyes. He pulls the curtain back in a sense. And what he reveals is not that, that there was some difference, that there was something contrary going on behind the scenes that what he, than what he was showing. What he was showing was everything that he has done in his ministry, all of his teaching, all of his miracles and everything, all he's doing is showing the broader picture of the plan of God and bringing his disciples and thereby us as well into it. Know God through the glory of prayer. When the curtain falls on a stage performance, the glory is gone. The illusion is gone. The fourth wall is broken. But when Christ pulls back the curtain and reveals the true workings of his ministry through a moment like this in prayer, we don't get a contrasting view, but we get the fuller picture. And that's what's going on here. Jesus had spoken these words to his disciples. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That was his clear-cut mission, glory. Now, in verse 3, he talks about eternal life. And if you don't know this, this is a great verse to memorize. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus' purpose in his mission was to come to this earth and accomplish eternal life, to purchase it for us forever and thereby bring glory to his Father. And his high priestly prayer invites us into the glory of that mission. It also invites us to find it as our mission as well. Just as Jesus knows the Father and prays this glorious prayer in this passage, he's inviting us into that very same relationship. Because in contrast to my silly illustration about the phone, Jesus is not simply one who says, you stay here and you stay there and I'll bring the message and I'll bring it over here. No, he brings us into relationship with the Father. So that his words are true that we saw last week. If you go back to verse 26 of chapter 16, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is the glorious mission of the Son for the Father, working out the obedience of that. St. Augustine said um, in his confessions, when I've, I've quoted before, in his prayer he says, Lord, you have made us to know you, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It is amazing that the mission of Christ in the bigger divine perspective 
is swallowed up in the glory of his father. And simultaneously, it encompasses our deepest need of knowing God. God so ordained that he would find glory in this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That word in the Greek is doxazo, which means to make renowned, to render illustrious, to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. Wow. This was the mission of Jesus. There's a simple outline for this passage if you'd like one for future study, which I highly encourage, especially since, again, this is one shot on John 17. The first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself. One through five. He's mentioning his obedience. I've completed the work that you've given to me. He mentions his authority. You've given me authority to give life to all to whom you have given me. And I'd point out what the authority matter with Jesus to recognize and to maintain that authority that is given to Jesus is never disconnected from the authority of the Father. Because even in that phrase, he said that I would give, sorry, this is verse 2, you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus' purpose in receiving authority and receiving glory is to just give it right back to the Father. And again, as we said earlier in preparing our hearts for worship, we're not bringing something separate from what God has done in our lives and saying, here's what I came up with. Rather, we're giving back to him the thing he's given to us. Our following Christ in the matters of life and Christian living and holiness extends also to worship. Verses 1 through 5 again. Obedience, authority. He's declared his victory, the purpose of glory. Even in verse 5, now, the, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That is what Jesus is going to. Yes, he's going to go through the cross to get there, but that's where his eyes are set. We've seen that multiple times in the last few chapters. We need not forget it. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus moves from praying for himself to praying for the 11. He prays for those who have received the word. He prays for those who have glorified Jesus in receiving the word. And he prays for those who have kept his word and who are kept by him. It's really interesting because Jesus uses the language of, I have kept them, I have not lost any of them except for the son of perdition, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But in that declaration of his keeping his disciples, he also prays, Father, would you keep my disciples as well? the matter of the security of the believer is settled in Christ. There is no fear, Christian, that if today you have truly received Christ and trusted in him for salvation, there's no reason to fear that one day that might fall out of your grasp or that God might lose place of you or that God might one day just say, you know what, I'm done with that guy. That last one particularly being my fear that I return to too often. He prays for his 11 disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, he prays for the whole church. This is where we see that wonder of verse uh, 22, I'm sorry, verse 20. I don't ask for those only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. He's not praying just that guys like Martin Luther and Billy Graham would know God through the glory of prayer and have these amazing experiences of prayer and studying his word and then going off into the world and doing great things. He's praying for everyone who falls under this umbrella, church. Those who will believe in me through their word. Have you believed in Christ? 
If you have, you've believed in it through the testimony of the apostles, through the truth of the word that Christ gave to them. And you have a place in John 17. But there's a problem. And the problem in this passage is kind of hard to figure out. What is it? What is the sin that is being addressed in this glorious prayer of God's purposes and God's keeping power and all these things? And as I look at Jesus praying, I couldn't move from Monday to Saturday night away from the idea of persisting in prayerlessness. That my biggest problem with prayer is that I just don't do it. I believe that if I asked you this morning, what your biggest problem is with prayer. I wouldn't be boasting by saying you and I have the exact same problem. We don't do it enough. We might say, you know, my prayer feels lifeless or it feels hollow or I I worry that I don't know how to pray. But the first necessary thing for a child to do is to begin speaking, to just use the words that they know, to start there with what they're learning step by step. And if we don't embrace that, but rather persist in prayerlessness, we're persisting in lifelessness. Because eternal life is what? This is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I would put to you this morning that there's no way to know God apart from prayer. Now, we are a word church, right? Absolutely. God must speak first. He must initiate because we don't have the ability, the drive, the motivation, or anything to sometimes even stay awake during a sermon, much less to bring ourselves into a place where we might be acceptable to God. Jonathan Edwards, we're coming up on Reformation Day tomorrow, so there's going to be some quotes. Jonathan Edwards, the... um, first great awakening, um, early American history, says, he that lives a prayerless life lives without God in the world. He that lives a prayerless life lives without God in the world. Now, this past week, I got put in Facebook jail. I did. And you're going to assume that there's some great story, how I said something really, really good, right? That really made somebody mad. And you probably liked it, but I didn't. I have no idea what I did. And when it got resolved, basically their answer was, oh, you haven't broken the terms and conditions of our community involvement, blah, 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 blah. We just messed up. That was all it was. But for a few days, I was unable to interact with people on Facebook. Not only was I unable to post things, I was unable to access the website. I was unable to get on Facebook Messenger to talk to my family or anything like that. I had to send my mom a funny text message and say, hey, I'm in Facebook jail, so if you need me, send me a text, not a Facebook message. The world that we live in that Jesus has spoken of multiple times in this passage believes that silencing people is a powerful move. It's one of the best things that they can do to stop agendas and plans and motivations and things that they might think might be destructive to all of their own versions of those plans, motivations, and desires. But it's not a very powerful move for somebody against, against somebody like me who barely really posts anything too often. Silencing people is a powerful move unless they don't have anything to say. Unless they don't take the opportunity to say it. And I'm not saying you should all have a Facebook account and be 
you know, posting all the time or anything. Not, not like that at all. But it just struck me that there's a similarity between my time in Facebook jail and how it largely didn't affect my life with how I often view prayer in my own Christian life as well. So what if your prayer life was disconnected for a week? Something that you said in your prayer life this past week went against the community standards of God. Would it make a difference for you to be disconnected for a day, for a week, for a month? Prayer was not something that you could engage in. I am afraid to say that my life may not look as different as I would hope it would look if I couldn't pray. Did that make sense? You're not supposed to say, does that make sense? But my concern would be that if you took prayer, the access that I have to God through prayer, away from me, that there might be a lot of things left over that seem unchanged. And that's kind of scary. Our struggle to come to the Lord in prayer is rooted in the fact that we are not fully sanctified for prayer. That is to say, we are not fully set apart to prayer. This is Jesus' request, in, or rather his, his intention as we come to verse 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. The need that we have from this passage is to be sanctified because we can't fulfill the call unless we have the means to do so. We can't know God unless we're welcomed into the presence of God. Do you remember Esther's plight when she was faced with the destruction of her people and her uncle said, hey, go to the king and talk to him. And what was her problem? What'd she say? I can't do it. I haven't been invited. She was worried she was going to lose her life if she initiated a conversation with the king. She didn't have the right in and of herself to be set apart for conversation with the king on her own behalf. She was disconnected. We read from Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 at the beginning, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who among us feels great about saying, yes, I have kept his word? That standard that Psalm 24 points to us and that Jesus mentions in verse 6 here. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. We would all want to say that, but I think just a brief moment of examination of the past week, or even the past morning, would reveal that we don't know that we can stand on that phrase as confidently as Jesus himself has stood there on our behalf. Well, if eternal life is defined by knowing God... Though we may know God, the pursuit of his glory is what is actually the proof of our life in him. Because that's what we see in Christ's life as well. This word glory appears over and over in this chapter. The mission is clear, to glorify the Father. That is what Christ calls us into. And that is the gauge that we can use to, in one sense, determine or, or give a, a health update on our truly knowing God? Are we more and more prompted to glorify him? And, and does prayer then tag along with that as the means by which we might request what we need to glorify him? But if we're persisting in prayerlessness, we're persisting in lifelessness. We're living according to the old way of, of life, apart from Christ, apart from the access that he's given us. So the question then turns into, what would the behind the scenes of your prayer life reveal to others? 
Christ shows us what it looks like when the curtain is torn down. And it's glorious. If we could tear the curtain down of your life to see your prayer life, to see your private devotion before God, I think that like me, you would feel like running out of the building as soon as you possibly could. Worldliness is a danger in this. See, the world, Jesus says, doesn't know God. Therefore, doesn't have eternal life. And the reason that we might persist in prayerlessness and persist, therefore, in lifelessness is because we live in a world that wants us to conform to the world's ways and, and our old flesh wants to conform back to how we lived before we knew Christ. Worldliness is still an issue for the Christian because we have not fully been sanctified yet. Now, in one sense, we are sanctified in that we do belong to God and we are kept by his love. But the process of sanctification is that process of being made more set aside for Christ such that you would hopefully be able to look at your life if you've been a Christian for 15 years to look back at 15 years ago when you started and look forward to hear where you are today and see there's been a difference my life is becoming less and less for myself and more and more for him. But as we all experience so often, our growth in that process might be three steps forward and then one step backward and then six steps forward and 600 steps backwards. Christ knows where you stand today. And this prayer is not affected by your faithfulness. It's not affected by your successful Christian life. And it's not even affected by your unsuccessful Christian life. Christ's prayer this morning, as powerful as it was when he said it, carries no less power this morning. And it's not affected by your prayerlessness. It is secure. There is not a request that the Son makes that the Father denies. Persisting in prayerlessness, though, is a primary way for us to see the continuing effect of the world in our lives, the lifelessness affecting us. Because prayerlessness comes from a, an idea that we don't need to speak with the Father in heaven. Now, I would draw your attention to 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 8, where there's a great warning that we should take in our, our spiritual battle that is the reality of the Christian life, where Peter talks about Satan as a roaring lion, and he says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I feel like I pray that verse almost every Sunday. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's a roaring lion. And a lot of times as Christians, we kind of act like that gazelle at the watering hole that doesn't even know what's going on. Have you watched it before, like National Geographic or something? And David Attenborough is taking you to the watering hole, and the animals go up, and they're like, well, I'm thirsty enough. I guess I can drop my guard a little bit and take a drink. And what's lurking in the background? A lion or, or some other predator. Or in the water, the crocodile head, you go, oh, get out of the water. Not being watchful, not being sober-minded. Worldliness sneaks up on us just as quickly as the devil does. And our flesh is all too quick to receive it. Contrarily, Jesus was consecrated to give us life. 
he was consecrated, he was set apart so that our prayers could be sanctified, so that we ourselves, first and foremost, could be sanctified for prayer. In verse 19 of our chapter 17 of John, Jesus says this very key line in here, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And then in verse 19, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Sanctify, consecrate, sanctify, all the same word in Greek. What Christ calls us to and requires of us are things that he has already done for us on, on our, he's already done for us. <laughs> he has accomplished these things for the mission so that we could be a part of what he's already doing and seeking the glory of the Father so that we might be set apart from sin and set apart to God. And that sin includes our persistence in prayerlessness, our persisting in lifelessness, and our wondering, why in the world do I so often feel like the same way I did before I even knew Jesus? Jesus consecrated himself at the cross, for the cross, so that we could live a sanctified life of prayer for the glory of the Father. There's a great memory verse in verse 17 of chapter 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Can you turn that into a prayer this morning? Fresh sanctification every day is our great need. We need to do essentially what Jesus has said he's done here. I'm consecrating myself yet again. If Jesus needs to a fresh consecration each day, how much more do we? In order that we might calm our weary hearts or to free us from the pressures of the world or to bring us boldly to the throne of grace. And his work doesn't bring us to the folded arms of the Father that we need to break through but to the open arms of a father who loves us. Look at verse 26. I may note to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is Christ's accomplishment on our behalf for the glory of the father, that the love of the father would extend through the son to us and bring us up into that perfect relationship. And that we experience that now through his word and through prayer. Jesus' prayer shows us the sweetness that we have already sung about. Since he bids me seek his face, believe his word, and trust his grace, I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. So what is the completion of this? What should we do? How do we walk by the Spirit in this truth? We ought to be sanctified for the glory of God through all Christ has prayed on your behalf. I'm going to share a couple of those things in a moment here. But the challenge, I think, that we might take from this passage, the short thing to consider daily, is can we persist in prayer in the word this week if for no other reason but to be consecrated for God's glory and not to our own? That is to say, we so often neglect prayer and neglect the word because we don't understand those things. Or we feel that perhaps we won't be able to do them well enough, we won't be able to study the word well enough, or we won't be able to engage in prayer well enough for it to be worthwhile but could you perhaps even start your day this week each day and pray, Lord, sanctify me for your glory today. And just leave it at that. What would the Father do in response to that kind of prayer if it be prayed by the heart and not just because your pastor asked you to do it? Could we be propelled to prayer by what Jesus has prayed for us and that we know the Father has already answered. Here's a couple things. Sanctification in the truth. We've mentioned it a few times. The Spirit guides us in the truth. He provides us with that fresh consecration each day. It's part of why we do communion, to be reminded, at least on a monthly basis, 
with a physical reminder of what Christ has done on our behalf. Sanctification and of the truth is something that Christ prayed for that's guaranteed for us. How about power in the name of the Father? You see the name of the Father mentioned three times here in verse 11, verse 12, and verse 26. Bible commentator Bruce Milne says that prayer is the cost of power. If you need power in your Christian life, I'm not saying so that you can be that flashy, big superstar Christian. I'm saying so that you can make it through Monday without wanting to throw your faith out the window entirely. That's the kind of power that I mean. Because that's the kind of power I know I need in those moments where I say, is it even worth it for me to keep trying this Christian thing? Prayer is the cost of power. And Milne says, the church of Jesus Christ is not likely to recover its lost authority until this basic truth is recovered. The basic truth of the power of the name of the Father found through prayer. Thirdly, a secure salvation. Jesus keeps those who keep his word. He says in verse 5, they have kept your word. He says in verse 11, I have kept them. Same word, guarded, treasured. This is not primarily about obedience. It is primarily about us saying the word of Christ is valuable. That's why we say this is the most important thing we're going to do today. If nothing else, it's training my heart, I know, to say I need to treasure the words of Christ. I may not obey them perfectly. I might not be a superstar Christian tomorrow because of this sermon. But I know that the more I value his word, the more it will transform me from one degree of glory to the next. Our salvation is secure. He keeps us. We're protected from the evil one. We may yet be in the world. We will still be faced with the temptations of worldliness. But he's called for the protection from the roaring lion that would seek to devour us. We are no longer the foolish gazelle that is not looking out for itself because we have a Father in heaven who is looking out for us and keeping us. Lastly, our successful mission is secured. We're going to sing after communion this morning. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. That's why you're still here. That's what you're sanctified for. And prayer is a necessary ingredient in that. It is one of the foundational things of the Christian life for the success of the mission. And if you feel that the mission of proclaiming Christ to the world around you is just something that you've failed in too many times, I call you to come back to prayer and to ask the Father, glorify yourself in me, just as our, our Savior has done, not only in his own life, but on your behalf as well. Lastly, the love of God is poured out continually. We read that in verse 26. That the love with which you have loved me, Jesus says, may be in them and I in them. You wonder if God loves you this morning? Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time with him on your knees, in your car. Lord, show your great love to me. I know you've, your word says that you've poured your love out in my life. Would you show that to me so that I might embrace it and walk in obedience?